You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In June 1863, the city of Nashville had a problem on its hands. Well, actually, it had two. I mean, really, it had three. Okay, let's straighten this out. Nashville's first problem was that it fell to the Union Army in the summer of 1862 and remained under federal occupation for more or less the rest of the war. This meant martial law and a sizable federal military presence. Not ideal for a Confederate city. Occupation and military law creates all sorts of tensions between the army and civilians, and of course, Nashville was no exception. Problem number two was that, like any other place where an army lingered for more than a few weeks, the city was absolutely overrun with sex workers catering to lonely soldiers. The prostitutes occupied a district, quote, two blocks wide and four blocks long, called Smoky Row. And one soldier recalled that no man could be a soldier unless he had gone through Smoky Row, but that Smoky Row killed more soldiers than the war. (laughs) Problem number three came directly from problem number two. The booming sex work business resulted in a boom in reports of venereal disease. Brigadier General R.S. Granger, the Union officer overseeing the occupation of Nashville, was, according to later records, quote, daily and almost hourly beset by Union medical officers that their soldiers were plagued by syphilis and gonorrhea. Infections threatened troop strength and caused lasting health problems for soldiers, and the rampant sex trade was a threat to the good moral character of the army. It was clear to federal authorities that cleaning up the city, specifically cleaning up the sex trade, was a military necessity. So rather than focus on, say, grand military plans, the federal authorities in Nashville had to come up with a plan to fix their prostitution and STI problem. We'll come back to the Nashville problem soon, because believe me, you want to hear this story. But I wanted to start with it because it's a perfect illustration of a great truth. Wherever you have a military, you will have sex. Whether an occupied city, an encampment in a theater of war, or a military base here in the United States, anywhere you have a large population of, for most of military American military history, young men stationed away from their girlfriends and wives, you will soon have a booming sex trade and, along with it, the requisite STI outbreak. So how has the United States military dealt with this particular problem facing soldier health? For this episode in our anniversary series on sex, we are talking about sex, 
sexually transmitted infections, and the U.S. military. I'm Sarah. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We'll swing back around to the story of Nashville's prostitution, syphilis, gonorrhea problem, but I actually want to give a broader overview of how the United States military has been affected by and tried to combat sexually transmitted infections. Um, So we're not just going to be talking about the Civil War today. We're going to be talking about sort of American military uh, history sort of writ large. And just a heads up about language. Today, we typically call these kinds of ailments sexually transmitted infections. Calling something like gonorrhea an infection rather than a disease is just more accurate since it typically can be cleared up with a round of antibiotics today. An infection is the first step in a disease. And since today we have effective treatments, that's less stigmatizing to think of them as what they are, right? Short-term infections. However, some STIs can cause disease. So a human papillomavirus or HPV infection can cause cervical cancer, which is definitely a disease. But neither of these terms existed for the time periods that we'll be covering today. Instead, these infections were usually called venereal diseases, a term that was derived from its association with the goddess Venus, the goddess of love and sex. While venereal, at its essence, meant sexually transmitted, it also carried sort of moral overtones of lasciviousness and sinful, uncontrolled lust. We'll be using the term venereal disease, or VD, throughout, but it's only to replicate the language used by people during the time periods we're discussing. We'll also have to use different language when it comes to selling sex. Today, the preferred term is sex work, which legitimizes selling sex as a real form of labor rather than a moralized identity. But in the past, people who sold sex were heavily stigmatized, and the words used to describe them reflected their scorned position in society. Whore, prostitute, hooker, etc. In our Nashville example, they were often called Cyprians, which was a euphemistic term that referred to inhabitants of the Greek island of Cyprus, where the cult of Aphrodite, who the Romans called Venus, made its home. So we'll sometimes use terminology to refer to sex workers in the past, even though we understand that most people agree that they're stigmatizing and inappropriate today. There are all sorts, like, it would just be interesting to do even an episode on the euphemisms used for sex workers over time, because, like, like, I had never heard of Cyprians until I was writing the the lecture that I gave on the, on what happened in Nashville for your sex class a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, or, or last yeah. year, um, and I had to Google it. I was like, Cyprians? What does that mean? And I'm like, oh, okay, it's yet an, another euphemism for a sex worker. Right. No, I don't think I had ever really heard that one either, but I could get it from context, I think. Yeah. I mean, you definitely can figure out what it is that they're talking about, but you're like, why are they calling them Cyprians? It just was, it was weird. I had to like stop and do a bunch of Googling. So when I say that wherever you have an army, you have sexually transmitted infections, I mean it, going in American history anyway, all the way back to the Revolutionary War. And you can quibble with me, I'm sure I know it goes beyond that, too, but come on. It's, you know, we only have so much time here. I was going to say, the Revolutionary War all the way back then. Yeah, no, I I, I recognize that it 
<laughs> yeah. Has a You'll, much longer history than that, but I'm trying to limit myself here. Um, anyway, after the American Revolution, the Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia compiled statistics about the health of American troops. Diseases included eye infections, respiratory infections, and dropsy, which is a word for sort of a, a kind of edema usually associated with heart problems. But a full 9% of cases reported were, you guessed it, venereal disease. At the Army Hospital in New Windsor, New York, in the summer of 1782, 38 of 225 hospitalized soldiers were there suffering from venereal disease, which seems to have been the largest single diagnosis in that hospital at the time. And apparently, George Washington himself complained that his troop strength was suffering during the Continental Army's New York campaign during the summer of 1776 because of the ravages of venereal disease. In the late 18th century, there were no real treatments except for mercury for syphilis, um, as Averill talked about in her syphilis episodes a while back, of course. So men who were suffering couldn't just receive a quick treatment and then return to the front lines. In an attempt to discourage men from getting diseases in the first place, the Continental Congress agreed to fine officers and soldiers seeking hospitalization for venereal diseases $10 for officers and $4 for soldiers, which was no small sum. According to one inflation calculator, the $10 fine for officers would be something like $300 today, although that's really just based on kind of speculation and estimates. But I think it's an interesting way of looking at like, you know, this is no small fine. They were fined for seeking hospitalization for venereal diseases? Well, because they were diagnosed with venereal diseases. When they showed up to the hospital. Right. But seeking hospitalization for them seems like a good choice because they won't be just spreading it all over to people. I completely agree with you. But I think that's just when they caught them. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. I agree. Like, you'd think that they would want that. You'd That they would encourage them to self-report so they could be treated. Mm -hmm. But in a way, that was actually what they didn't want because they weren't fighting. They'd have to be they'd have to be hospitalized for weeks, months. Yeah, instead. but they weren't really discouraging the spread of the disease at all. No. <laughs> right. Well, you know, because you just said an attempt to discourage men from getting the disease in the first place. But it's like, well, it's actually discouraging them from reporting. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, it's the Continental Congress. These are the people that, you know. Every day, some Republican congressman is talking about, like, the unmitigated genius of the Continental Congress. So, you know, don't question them, Marissa. Well, they have a, they have a very faulty understanding of human nature, I feel like. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so while we don't usually think about the Lewis and Clark expedition as a military operation, it was undertaken by the Corps of Discovery, a specially commissioned military unit within the U.S. Army by President Thomas Jefferson to undertake an exploration of the newly acquired Louisiana Purchase and lands beyond. It was headed up by Captain Meriwether Lewis and 2nd Lieutenant, I almost said Lieutenant because I watched too much British television, 2nd Lieutenant William Clark, both veterans of the United States Army and filled with 30 enlisted men and five non-commissioned officers. And like just about every other military operation ever, it was also marked by sex and, of course, venereal disease. As Thomas Lowry so succinctly put it at the beginning of his book on sex and the expedition, sex is the long ignored theme of Lewis and Clark and their immortal journey, sex 
and venereal disease. <laughs> I like how he just puts that, like, very bluntly. <laughs> yeah. The expedition did not have a doctor, so all medical concerns were treated by the leaders of the expedition, Lewis and Clark themselves. They were prepared. They carried with them urethral syringes and supply of mercury to treat syphilis, suggesting that they were pragmatic about the fact that sex was obviously going to happen on their perilous transcontinental adventure. Actually, that does sound like very good planning. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> I wouldn't even thought of it. Right. Um... As they did with nearly everything they didn't encounter on their journey, Lewis and Clark diligently recorded each instance of disease they encountered and treated. If you do a keyword search for pox in their digitized journals, there's instance after instance of journal entries like this. January 31, 1806. Discovered that McNeil, one of the privates, ha ha ha, had the pox, gave him medicine, end quote. I was just giggling at the word privates. <laughs> Lewis and Clark's journals, along with the journals written by other members of the Corps, are full of references of the group's sexual adventures and their consequences. The members of the expedition were getting the pox by having sex with Native American women along their journey. Now, we need to keep in mind that the sources that we have to be able to tell this history are all written by the white American men who traveled with Lewis and Clark or by Lewis and Clark themselves. So their description of Native women uh, is super problematic, right? Take this, for instance, written by Corps member Sergeant Patrick Gass. If this brief journal should happen to be preserved and ever thought worthy of appearing in print, some readers will perhaps expect that after our long, friendly intercourse with these Indians, we ought to be prepared now to give some account of the fair sex of Missouri and entertain them with narratives and of feats of love as well as of arms. It may be observed generally that chastity is not very highly esteemed by these people and that the severe and loathsome effects of certain French principles are not uncommon among them. The fact is that the women are generally considered an article of traffic and indulgencies are sold at a very moderate price. As proof, I will just mention that for an old tobacco box, one of our men was granted the honor of passing a night with the daughter of the head chief of the Mandan nation. Mm. Yeah. And they just blame that on the French because the French owned that land before them. Yes. But in reality, right. that's kind of part of indigenous hospitality culture and stuff, too. Yeah. It's it's the, the certain French principles are, you know, yeah. It's hard to know what the real dynamics of these relations were. Gas clearly suggests that Native Americans have loose sexual morals. He euphemistically says they have certain French principles. A jab at the apparent licentiousness of the French. For more on that, see Averill's episode on Le Petit Moor. And that licentiousness meant, at least to Gas, that they were plagued with the severe and loathsome effects of those principles, meaning venereal disease. We also need to remember that the journals were all edited for publication, which meant that they had to be made acceptable by early 19th century standards. Gass's reference to Native American sex work was made to fit a narrative that was common in adventure novels, the tempting local women, while also making it clear that the women were the bad ones. Lewis and Clark's official journals were also edited so that they stuck to the facts, meaning that they often downplayed the more salacious bits of the story. 
Nevertheless, if you pare away the editing, the journals are packed with references to sex and STIs in between details about flora and fauna. Take, for instance, this entry from July 2nd, 1806. Quote, nothing worthy of notice transpired in the course of the day. Goodrich and McNeil are both very unwell with the pox, which they contracted last winter with the Chinook women. This forms my inducement principally for taking them to the falls of the Missouri, where, during an interval of rest, they can use the mercury freely. I found two species of native clover here, the one with a very narrow, small leaf and a pale red flower, the other nearly as luxuriant as our red clover, with a white flower the left and bloom of the latter are proportionably large. End quote. <laughs> don't, you, don't you love that, that he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They both have the pox. They were having sex with this Chinook woman. Look at, I found this really cool clover. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how the, jur- like, that's how the journals are, like, over and over and over again. He's, like, talking about some bird that he found. And then he's, like, yeah, McNeil's got syphilis again. And, like, it's McNeil, for some reason, it was apparently just, like, very busy. Because it seems like he was uh, very poxed. <laughs> he comes up over and over again. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's super hot. Maybe. Don't I don't know. It's also hard to make sense of the sexual relationships between core members and Native women because of the huge cultural differences, both those between the core and the Natives and between people in the early 19th century and us today. While it might be easy for us to think about the relationships between white corpsmen and Native women as obviously problematic in terms of power, especially, of course, in light of uh, the American history of genocide perpetrated against Native peoples, the belief systems of the tribes the core encountered. Historian Brad Tennant has suggested that some tribes, like the Great Plains tribes of the Arikara and Mandan, had spiritual beliefs that made sex between Native women and the white travelers actually beneficial. Tennant has argued that women were understood as a kind of vessel who could transfer power from one male sexual partner to another, meaning that she could transfer power, say, from a member of the core to her own husband. There is some evidence that Arikara and Mandan people were particularly interested in York, a black man enslaved by William Clark and brought along on the voyage. In 1810, when William Clark was interviewed by banker Nicholas Biddle, you might recognize his name from the infamous Jacksonian Bank War. He becomes very embroiled in that. He is the banker of the bank war. Um, Clark told a story to Biddle about how an Arikara man, eager to acquire some of York's apparent animalistic power, offered him his wife for sex. The man stood guard by the door of his home while York and his wife had sex in order to ensure that they could complete the act without interruption. So I just want to add there that it was the Arikara who interpreted York as having a kind of animalistic power. This comes up several times. Many tribes see him as a man of color and sort of associate him with the powers of the animal world. Other tribes sometimes look at the white men and see them as as particularly powerful. And that's why they're, you know, orchestrating these relationships or at least these sexual um, liaisons with their wives. Or they were just into cuckolding. 
whatever it's called. <laughs> it's interesting though because from our perspective, we're like, oh yikes, the the. I could see it very easily someone saying like, oh, it was just white dudes like raping their way across the the modern United States, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But it seems, and I don't want to weigh into this too heavily because this is obviously not my area of expertise, but from everything that I read, it seems much more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the whole thing of the women, I mean... If the their husbands consent, right, that would have been considered consent at the time, right. But like that doesn't really mean that, that they the woman consented. consented. Exactly, the right. woman might have been coerced right. by her friends and family or husband mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, there's like, you know, it's hard to know. Yeah, um, the core of Discovery's travails with sexually transmitted infections had an unexpected long term impact. While we've always had a general idea of the route the Corps took, based on their journals and maps, the Corps' heavy use of mercury-based medications meant that the men had left a literal trail as they traveled. As the men injected mercury into their penises and swallowed mercury-laden calomel, a 19th-century cure-all for intestinal distress, they subsequently filled their latrines with traces of the element. And since mercury doesn't degrade, they left a mercury trail of their movements across the West that archaeologists are able to follow today, which means we have a much clearer picture of their movements now than we ever have, all thanks to penis mercury and poop pits. That's crazy. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Yes, I love it. I think it's (laughs) great. Um, But anyway, enough about Lewis and Clark and their horny travels. Let's get back to Nashville and their prostitution problem. We're sure there was lots of STIs during the War of 1812 and the Mexican War, but there's only so much we can cover here, folks, and Sarah's obsessed with the Civil War. Listen, I limited myself. I limited myself just to Nashville. (laughs) I could go on and on, but I am not. Uh, Anyway. Back to Nashville. When we left that story, Brigadier General Granger was grappling with the military necessity of cleaning up the sex work in the city and dealing with the problem posed by the syphilis and gonorrhea outbreak. He had good reason to be concerned about the outbreak of STIs. A case of gonorrhea or syphilis often left a man unfit for duty, and the treatments often took a soldier entirely out of the fighting force for days or even weeks. One surgeon in the 115th Pennsylvania described his days-long treatment regimen for gonorrhea like this, quote, Injecting a solution of chlorate of potash, one drachm in eight ounces every hour for 12 successive hours, and then gradually ceasing its use during the next two to three days by prolonging the interval between each injection. That was a lengthy treatment that took a lot of the doctor's time and attention, as well as taking a soldier out of commission, which affected troop strength. The Union Army wouldn't be able to hang on to Nashville, which was already a difficult task, if their troops were all hospitalized for venereal diseases. Something had to be done to stop the rates of infection and protect the federal force occupying the Confederate city. Granger's solution was to turn to Lieutenant Colonel George Spaulding, Provost Marshal of Nashville. Provost Marshals were essentially the Civil War Military Police, or MPs, which means Member of Parliament in real life. No, it means Military Police. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. 
kind of. Um, Spalding figured that there couldn't be any more prostitution if there weren't any prostitutes. This makes me think of that meme of the guy tapping his head like, ah, figured it out. Got it. Got it. (laughs) Just get rid of the prostitutes. Um, So in early July 1863, Lieutenant Colonel Spalding orchestrated an effort to gather up the sex workers in Nashville. First, he issued a general order required that the sex workers get out of the city. Then, two days later, he requisitioned a steamboat named, get this, the Idaho, with a <laughs> E at the end of Idaho. Like, Isn't that amazing? Like, <laughs> Idaho, like I'm the hoe. Oh my god, it's great. Uh, to transport all of the women out of the city. So it's like an I'm a hoe boat. I'm a I'm a hoboat. According to the Nashville Daily Press, quote, squads of soldiers were engaged in heaping furniture out of various dens and then tumbling their disconsolate owners after, end quote. Apparently, they weren't very careful regarding which women they rounded up because the newspaper also reported that several respectable ladies were unceremoniously marched off. But overall, the newspaper concluded this course toward bad women will have a salutary effect upon the morals of the soldiers, end quote. The Nashville Dispatch agreed, bidding the women adieu as they sailed out into the Cumberland River. Wayward sisters, go in peace. The idea was to send the steamboat to Louisville, Kentucky, where they would offload the women. But several days later, when they approached Louisville, the military authorities in that city would not let them disembark. Instead, they suggested that the boat continue up the Ohio River to Cincinnati. On the way, they were able to release at least some of the women who were taken off the boat by friends and supporters in Newport, Kentucky. But most of the women were sort of trapped. And this is, I'm just going to interject here that um, I, I like want this desperately to be a movie or a novel because the women who were gotten off of the boat in Newport, Kentucky were gotten off with writs of habeas corpus. Um, And I'm like fascinated with the idea that they were like using some sort of communication network to get the, the, the news out that they were basically being held against their will without writs Mm -hmm. um, on this boat. (laughs) And like, lawyers must have had to intercede, right? Like, Right, like somebody who, you know, knew them and cared about them and right. knew lawyers and the lawyers wrote right. up writs of habeas corpus. Yeah. Right. So we're talking about people who were fairly well connected, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just find that fascinating. And that's a part of the story that in every every source that I looked at was just like, oh, some of the women were able to get off in Newport. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> I want that story, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, it might be out there and I just didn't find it. But if, if you, listener, know about it, tell me because I'm fascinated by this. Anyway. OK, so some of them were able to get off in Newport. Most of them are sort of trapped on the steamboat. When they arrived in Cincinnati, it probably comes as no surprise to you that they were, again, denied entry. With nowhere else to go, and after floating around with women who were effectively being held against their will, again, with no writ of habeas corpus, authorities in the War Department intervened and directed the Idaho to turn around and return back to Nashville. This is going well. Right. (laughs) The women were released, and the captain of the Idaho was pissed. His boat and his reputation were trashed. It was now, you know, the Idaho was now generally known as the floating whorehouse. 
Well, that's his fault for naming it Idaho with an E. Right. <laughs> Maybe that joke didn't exist. Then. Probably I, it I, didn't. But it's fun to think. I, yeah, that part of me thinks that somebody probably put it together. Anyway, eventually, the captain did receive $5,000 from the government as compensation for his lost income in all of this. But in total, the women had been floating around the Cumberland and Ohio rivers for nearly a month. It's just wild. That sounds like so many mosquitoes. Like, I just can't yeah. imagine. And no wonder the, the boat was trashed because, like, he, like, wasn't expecting them to be on it for a month. He was expecting them to be on it for a few days to get to Louisville, right? Yeah. And they're pissed off. They don't want to be there. And in the first place, he had to be kind of pressed into service in the first place. He did not want right. to do this. And they kind of were like, well, martial law, you got to do it. Yeah. So during that time, something else happened in Nashville. Their sex work problem didn't entirely go away. The provost marshal and police had rounded up, it turned out, only the white sex workers, leaving behind the smaller population of black women. When the white women were shipped out, the Nashville Daily Press and Nashville Dispatch both reported that more black women, including contraband women seeking refuge in the Union-occupied city, flocked to Nashville and set up their own trade. The dispatch angrily railed that, quote, unless the aggravated curse of lechery as it exists among the negresses of this town is destroyed by rigid military or civil mandates or the indiscriminate expulsion of the guilty sex, the ejectment of the white class will turn out to have been productive of the sin it was intended to eradicate. No city has been more shamefully abused by the conduct of its unchaste female population, white or black, than has Nashville for the past 18 months. We trust that while in the humor of ridding our town of libidinous white women, General Granger will dispose of the hundreds of black ones who are making our fair city a Gomorrah. That, end quote, makes me want to fucking scream. Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? Oh, yeah. These women just like totally just need to bone all day long. They just right. really love doing this. Right. It's exactly. not because they have no other way to make a living. Right. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is wrong with that? Right. I mean, it's it's very like 19th century press. Like, it's very kind of like over the top and editorializing. Right. But but absolutely. Right. But it's like, does this human being live in the same 19th century that everyone else did? Right. And what I think is really interesting is that they're they're certainly not, um, you know, removing blame from the white women, but they're saying, like, in the process of taking away all the libidinous white women, General Granger is going to make the 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 city into Gomorrah, which is like even worse. Right. Like, right. That's that's horrible because now all the sex workers who are here are black. So mm -hmm. it's it's pretty gross. Either way, once the white women were returned to Nashville, Granger had to come up with a plan B. Kicking the women out clearly had not worked. <laughs> how how they thought that it was going to work, I'm not entirely sure. That's part of my one of my favorite parts about the story. Like, <laughs> how did he think that Louisville was going to be like, yes, yes, give us a thousand <laughs> prostitutes? Right. Sounds great. I don't know. Uh, so anyway, this had not worked. And the idea of constantly policing women or arresting soldiers as Johns seemed impossible, right? They'd just be constantly, constantly trying to arrest people. So instead, they tried a different approach. Instead of doubling down on criminalization, they decided to just legalize sex work. Amazing, right? 
but how to stop the rampant spread of disease. The answer was regulation. Women who practiced sex work had to receive a license to operate from the military authorities in the city, which required that they give their address to facilitate tracking. The women also had to consent to weekly medical exams. If a woman was free of venereal disease and was generally healthy, they were given a health certificate and allowed to conduct business, although they did have to pay a 50 cent weekly tax, which was a reasonable sum. It was not overly burdensome. Plus, that tax went to pay for a hospital. Now, one thing I'm not sure about is whether this hospital was run by the Army Medical Department within the Union Army. I assume that it was, but I don't know that. Uh, But this hospital would be the place where women who failed their medical exams would go to receive free treatment. It would be paid for by that tax. According to the medical and surgical history of the War of the Rebellion, 300 women were registered in January 1864. And by the following June, one year later, that number had raised to 456, with an additional 50 or so black women. The general feeling was that this experiment was a success. The MSHWR recorded that, quote, under these regulations, a marked improvement was speedily noticed in the manner and appearance of the women. When the inspections were first enforced, many were exceedingly filthy in their persons and apparel and obscene and coarse in their language. But this soon gave place to cleanliness and propriety. And while the occurrence of STIs didn't disappear in the federal forces in Tennessee, it did seem to improve. And the MSHWR recorded that most new cases were not traceable to Nashville. It's really interesting here. Part of this, I mean, this is a public health story. And we'll see over and over again, not just in the Nashville example, but later on as well, that a big part of this is something that public health workers are having to do today, which is contact tracing. Mm-hmm. Right. I personally think it's interesting about the part where they say that the women were all kind of like filthy and improper mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually they were all clean and proper. It's like, right. whoa, how did that happen? And it makes you wonder if the women learned how to behave. How to pass how the to exams. prepare probably. themselves. Yeah, yeah. To pass the exams. And it just makes you think about how they navigated that sort of uh, right. hurdle. Yeah, definitely. The story of sex work in Civil War in Nashville is interesting, not just because of the idea of a ship full of prostitutes called Idaho <laughs> um, floating around in the Cumberland River, but because it shows us a great deal about the dilemma the U.S. military faces then throughout the 20th century right up to today between policing and accepting sexuality. In the Nashville example, the federal military authorities found that policing didn't work all that well. Even when they'd gotten the white women temporarily out of town, the sex work vacuum was immediately filled with black women. What ultimately worked in Nashville was accepting that the sex trade wasn't going anywhere because women would keep offering their services, but also because soldiers really wanted to make use of those services. While the officials involved in the Nashville experiment felt like this was an unprecedented event, we know it really wasn't. In fact, at nearly the same time in Great Britain, the Contagious Diseases Act also required medical examinations of prostitutes catering to the military. But the other thing we see in the Nashville experiment is the assumption that the problematic party was not the soldiers being diagnosed with venereal disease, but instead the women the soldiers were having sex with. 
It should come as no surprise that it was this misogynist aspect of the Nashville experiment that stuck around in later military attempts to control venereal disease rather than the legalization and regulation part of it. For example, not unlike the women of Civil War era Nashville, historian Marilyn Haggerty's book Victory Girls, Khaki Wackies, and Patriot Toots, The Regulation of Female Sexuality During World War II, relates the story of thousands of women who were arrested on morals charges across the United States during the Second World War, many of whom had never even done sex work or had any venereal diseases. Instead, they were labeled patriotutes, or women who demonstrated their support for the troops by having sex with soldiers, or at least appearing to have sex with soldiers, being sexually available to soldiers, sometimes just being in the general vicinity of soldiers. Just existing. <clears throat> right. Being female near the military. Other World War II nicknames for these quote-unquote loose women were Victory Girls, Khaki Wackies, and Good Time Charlottes. I'm personally very fond of Khaki Wackies. I like that. Me too. According to Haggerty, there was a sort of elision between prostitution and promiscuity that, you know, they, they came to mean more or less the same thing, even when women weren't actually being particularly promiscuous. I'll quote her here. The figure of the patriotute embodies a paradox. For the authorities, she symbolized threatening female sexuality, the patriot and the prostitute, the good and bad female, inseparable. Such women were dangerous to the maintenance of a healthy fighting force. A 1940 study based on routine blood tests conducted by the Selective Service on men as they registered for the draft showed that 6% of draftees were ultimately rejected because of venereal disease. But in such cases, infection rates were not interpreted as the failing of male sexuality, but the threat of unchecked female sexuality. The men who tested out were simply sent home, but the United States Public Health Service was called in to do contact tracing to find the women behind those infections, often resulting in forced quarantines. Left unchecked, it was diseased women who had the potential not only to weaken the military, but also the male population doing critical domestic war work. And the weird thing about that is that isn't it easier for men to spread venereal disease than it is for women. I actually don't know. I think in some cases that it is that that men are less likely to contract venereal disease when they have sex with a woman hmm. than a woman is to contract venereal disease when they have sex with a man. Yeah, yeah. That's at least so like they're actually focusing on the person who in terms of being a vector of disease right has less reach than yeah the man i mean to me it has so much to do with like really really old ingrained ideas about women and women's sexuality that they are both honeypots right like they're mm -hmm. so enticing that you can't avoid them they're temptresses but they're also inherently unclean and that mm -hmm. you can't trust them and they're fickle yeah and, like in the Rico Gimento episode, yeah. that women are just inherently vulnerable mm -hmm. to sexual promiscuity. Yeah. That if you don't physically enclose them, they right. will find a way to f And I think that this is, that. I mean, that's an important part of it, too. I mean, a lot of this episode and your episode was about female sexuality, right? Whether it's policing it or, or whatever. But female sexuality becomes sort of the center of the story when actually a lot of this is also has to it really relies on 
male sexuality as well, because the idea is that men have to have sex. It's part of their nature. Right. They can't control it. They they are they almost biologically have to have sex. And so right. in the Civil War, what's interesting about the Nashville experiment is they kind of just accept that. They're like, okay, fine. They have to have sex. They don't even question that part. Right. Yeah, that's that is that's just assumed. Right. Like well, obviously men have to have sex. Right. And that's not the case. That's not the case everywhere in the Mm -hmm. Union Army. It's not at all because there's like a a huge campaign to crack down on pornography in the ranks and that that kind of thing. But in that particular experiment in Nashville, it's kind of like they just threw up their hands. They're like, they're going to have sex. Right. (laughs) We can't do anything about it, you know. But while patriotes were understood as a threat, women's sexuality was also interpreted as necessary to the war effort. In the Nashville experiment, there was sort of a begrudging acceptance that sex was going to happen. But during World War II, it wasn't just begrudging. It was a requirement for good morale. If you know anything about the culture of the U.S. militaries during World War II, or if you've seen Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan or even played a World War II video game, you know that pinup girls, cheesecake photographs, and other sexualized images of women, especially celebrities, played a huge role in soldier morale. Particularly popular among GIs was actress Veronica Lake, famous for her glamorous, shining, wavy hair that often covered one eye in a very sexy way. I think that Jessica Rabbit was modeled on Veronica Lake. Yeah. Yeah. That might just be my own I feel like it has to be. But the eye. Based on the the wavy hair eye thing, yeah, yeah, I get it. So this is a complete side note, but I could I, I ran this was like a weird thing that I ran across in my research, so I couldn't help but but in, put it in here. So Lake was so popular and so well known for her gorgeous hair that Life magazine, which was hugely popular during world the World War II era, featured her in a photo essay to demonstrate the ways that women were having to change their beauty routines when they were doing wartime industrial work. One photograph showed Lake's shiny locks wrapped around the bit on a drill press, her sexy red lips parted in mock pain and concern. But what's funny about this is that the photographers had no idea how drill presses worked, So they accidentally photographed her hair wrapped around the bit in the wrong way, meaning that if it was actually running, her hair would just run off of the bit uh, instead of posing any danger. This did not go unnoticed by life readers who wrote um, all of these bemused letters to the editor, such as this one. Everyone knows the effect Veronica Lake has on soldiers, sailors, and Marines, but it is hard to believe that she could make a drill press run backwards. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was so funny. That is. That's great. (laughs) So beautiful women were such a powerful motivating force for soldiers that actresses were also quite literally called into patriotic service. The Hollywood Canteen, for instance, was a dance club in Hollywood founded by actors John Garfield and Betty Davis. Almost every night, up to 2,000 GIs, most of whom were in California en route to being deployed to the bloody Pacific Theater, would pack the canteen, where they enjoyed free food and drinks. No booze. What? No booze, because they wanted to keep everything above board. No, oh, Nobody getting um, handsy. 
Well, they got to dance with starlets, even though yes. they didn't have booze. Um, well, big stars like Marlene Dietrich, Bing Crosby, Dorothy L'Amour, Joan Crawford, Betty Grable, and Hattie Lamar made appearances. Most of the workers at the canteen were hopeful young actresses on contract with um, a big studio and thus beholden to their demands. Dancing and charming America's fresh-faced GIs became these starlets' job night after night. Uh, after night? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> night after night after night after night, uh, almost entirely because they had pretty faces, perky breasts, and wasp waists. This was a kind of war work, as Anne Helen Peterson has written. These women, quote, weren't lying in bunkers or taking bullets, but they were performing an ideological public service, completely gratis, that equaled any number of propaganda posters, training films, or victory gardens, end quote. It wasn't just starlets, though. The United Service Organization, or USO, recruited beautiful young women to work as hostesses at USO service clubs around the United States. And while USO hostesses were certainly not encouraged to actually have sex with lonely young men, they were required to use their bodies to, according to historian Megan Winchell, tantalize and comfort soldiers with dancing and companionship. Women's sexuality was simultaneously integral to soldier morale and dangerous to soldier health. The threat posed by such women was apparently so serious that in some states, authorities arrested so many women on morals charges that they ran out of space in jails. Elliot Ness, who had become famous fighting the Chicago mob during Prohibition and was now head of the Social Protection Division, an agency tasked with preventing and policing venereal disease around military bases, suggested that women be transferred from crowded jails to former civilian conservation corps camps. Those camps, which had housed work crews of young men employed by the federal government under the New Deal to do environmental conservation work, had been handed over to the U.S. Army when the program ended. But they were literally camps in the woods in very rural areas and typically without many comforts for detained women. The federal government also fought prostitution and the spread of sexually transmitted infections through the passage of the May Act in 1941. This law made prostitution and any kind of sex solicitation, so not necessarily solicitation for pay, near a military base a federal crime. The May Act was first used in May of 1942 in, you want to guess where? Tennessee. Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on in Tennessee? It's like this epicenter of like military prostitution problems. So uh, a year later, so after the first round of um, arrests in May of 1942, Helen Hieronymus, who was the warden of the Federal Reformatory for Women in Alderson, West Virginia, where the first May Act convicts had been sent after they were arrested, wrote a study on the women. They, according to Hieronymus, tended to be, quote, flashily dressed, gay, and reckless young women with a certain amount of sophistication, or a homesick, bewildered young girl expecting to marry her sweetheart, but abandoned. Nearly all the women came from poverty and had moved to the area around the base, quote, ill-equipped for the rapid whirl of soldiers, easy money, beer taverns, and freedom from drudgery, drabness, and monotony. Moreover, almost all of the women had scored between, quote unquote, dull normal and imbecile on IQ tests, making them exactly the kinds of promiscuous, immoral, genetically inferior women who posed the biggest eugenic threat to the nation. Very few of them actually had 
sexually transmitted infections, but it didn't really matter. They had the potential to dangerously undermine good and moral order for the men tasked with saving the world from fascism. And this is really, I think this is a really actually an important point that they're given these IQ tests and that becomes a, a critical part of of sort of reporting on the justification for imprisoning them because we tend to think of eugenics in the United States as ending mm-hmm. with World War II, right? We think like, oh, we were like, things were getting real eugenic in the U.S., but then Nazis. Made it go out of fashion. And then once that, and then eugenics just disappeared. That is not the case, right? Especially for women, especially for women who were arrested mm-hmm. on morals charges, even at, well mm-hmm. after World War II. So on one hand, women's sexuality was critical to maintaining a happy, committed, and motivated fighting force. But at the exact same time, women's sexuality posed a serious threat to both troop strength and the strength of the male American workforce. You can see the way that the U.S. military struggled to balance on the fine line between good girls and bad girls in some of their anti-VD educational films. These films, made under the direction of the War Department, were essentially sex ed for soldiers and sailors in hopes of preventing sexually transmitted infection outbreaks. There's a particularly great one called Pick Up, which tells the story of a soldier who had a one-night stand to celebrate the fact that he'd headed home on a two-week furlough, even though he's headed back to his librarian girlfriend. Who's going to take take her hair out of a bun and take her glasses off and be super hot. Anyway, um, the girl he convinces to have sex with him is young, lovely, and shy, just a kid. Nevertheless, he contracts gonorrhea and is subjected to a stern lecture from the base's medical officers, loses his furlough, and gets shipped out to the Pacific. Uh, It's very clear that even though the soldier pursued the pickup, the girl was the guilty party. And the recurring theme in the film is that you can't even trust the girl next door. Even the good girl might actually also be a bad girl. Right. These efforts were, of course, focused on American women near American bases in American legal settings. Things were a bit more complicated once GIs shipped out and started to have sex with local women. During the Vietnam War, the U.S. Army was forced to reevaluate its approach to policing soldiers' sexual activity and preventing sexually transmitted infections. Things had changed between World War II and Vietnam. Yes, again, I apologize. I'm skipping Korea. I'm sorry. Go watch MASH. Um, (laughs) It was the most important two years, okay? (laughs) Things had changed between World War II and Vietnam in terms of how everyone, soldier and civilian, thought about sex. The availability of the birth control pill and the sexual revolution of the late 1960s changed the way that soldiers thought about their right to have sex. I put sexual revolution there in like big quotes. Like I just want you to hear me putting quotes around that because it's like, you know, with a big like asterisk. Um, But Mm -hmm. now, at least in the late 60s, it seemed more like an individual personal right, sex did, that the army couldn't regulate, especially during an unpopular war fought by a force made largely of disaffected draftees. Seeking release from the stresses of the service in-country, many soldiers used drugs, drank heavily, and made use of the newly booming South Vietnamese sex trade. And I mean booming. In 1969, there were 550,000 American soldiers in Vietnam spending literally millions of dollars while on their two-week R&R trips to Saigon and other locations. 
In addition, introduction of antibiotics towards the end of World War II meant that by the time of the Vietnam War, most sexually transmitted infections were easily treated, which also meant that they didn't seem as disturbing or as threatening as they had once been. The result was that, once again, venereal disease became a major problem facing the military. Like it had during World War II, the Department of Defense, previously called the War Department, responded by making a sex ed film called Where the Girls Are, VD in Southeast Asia. Apparently, the film was conceived because Secretary of the Air Force, Harold Brown, was horrified at the rate of STIs he discovered during a trip to Vietnam. Brown took his concern to Secretary of Defense Clark Clifford, who then gave the project to General John McConnell, who then tasked the Air Force Medical Service to make an educational film to stop the spread of VD. One officer involved in the film production believed that the film was critical because, quote, the capability of the overseas command to fulfill its mission could be jeopardized without adequate indoctrination and education in health subjects, end quote. <laughs> indoctrination. Um... That's such a weirdly, like, military-ish word Mm -hmm. to use. Um, The resulting film was designed to educate soldiers and the Air Force about the hazards and tragedies of becoming a victim of the rampant VD in Vietnam. Oddly enough, Where the Girls Are was the only military film about venereal disease produced during Vietnam, which is surprising only because there were so many made by just about every branch of the military during World War II. Yeah, there's, like dozens from World War II, like tons and tons and tons. Just go on YouTube and like Google World War II sex ed film and you will find like 10. And they're like ones made by the Air Force and ones made by the Marines and ones made by the Navy and ones made by the Army. This where the girls are was made by the Air Force and that's it. Yeah, it's weird. It is weird. It still emulates its predecessors by telling the story of a fresh faced, naive GI named Pete who's trying to be true to his sweetheart at home. Julie, or after arriving in country. Nevertheless, he's lured by the temptations of Saigon's massage parlors, where he contracts gonorrhea. He's sternly lectured by a medical officer and heartened by some letters from Julie, but once again gives in to the temptation to have sex with a Vietnamese woman while on R&R. Later, Pete returns home. He and Julie decide to get married, but gasp during premarital blood tests. Oh, how romantic. I know. (laughs) Pete discovers he has syphilis, which he may have given to his good and wholesome American fiancé. Good and wholesome American fiancé. I thought this is everything was always women's fault. I know. Isn't that interesting? But it's like, but but where the girls are is doing Mm -hmm. something different because we're talking about Vietnamese Mm -hmm. women versus American women. Right. It's the American. Yeah. And this is very late 18th century, mm-hmm. early 19th century thing where like men are hor- prostitutes are horrible, but men are horrible because they are the way that prostitutes give venereal disease to entire families. Exactly. Right. That's that's how a good, wholesome American woman ends up with right. VD is not because she's a slut, but because right. her you know, cheating man brought yep. it back from Madonna Vietnam. horror yeah. complex. Mm hmm. Uh, I'll quote scholar Sue Sun here. Quote, the film ends on a somber note with Pete's mourning intonation. You can't promise a girl like Julie you'll be true to her and then show up with a case of syphilis. End quote. Gee, golly gosh. What a story. <laughs> I wasn't able to watch this one. I was just reading an article about it. and But, like, now I really want to watch this because it just yeah. sounds really fantastic. 
And horrible. So while the theme of Pickup, the World War II film, was that even apparently good American girls can't be trusted, the theme of where the girls are is that Vietnamese women were overly sexual and that Asia, in general, was the home of sexual decadence. The Orientalist fetishism and racism is overt. One character in the film describes Vietnam as, quote, sensuous Southeast Asia, land of the slope-eyed broads and scented baths. The Vietnamese women featured in the film are heavily sexualized, depicting hanging on each other, showing off short skirts and exposed thighs, and the scenes of Saigon focus on the seedy. According to Sue's son, quote, it was intended that Saigon would be presented as a collection of foreign options, presenting a somewhat fantastical view of Vietnamese life as it was thought to be perceived by the American soldier. So they're like filming Saigon through sort of the gaze of an American soldier there on R&R, seeing it as like uh, a cornucopia of Mm -hmm. bodily delights, right? It's like not giving you an image of what Saigon was actually like. Indeed, Vietnam itself was depicted as feminized, with almost no male Vietnamese characters appearing at all. It's a country of dangerous, enticing women. On the other hand, naive Pete is depicted as a clean-cut, white American boy next door. What's more, the film focuses intently on only one kind of STI prevention, abstinence. While the military did provide soldiers with condoms, the film does not instruct soldiers on how to effectively use them, which is probably why rates of STIs were still high despite their availability. Instead, the only real way to avoid disease, at least according to this film and according to the instructions of the military, was to avoid diseased women entirely. Today, despite some advancements in treatment regimens and sex education and a military force made up of both men and women, sexually transmitted infections are again on the rise in the U.S. armed forces. According to a report by the Armed Forces Health Surveillance Branch, which is essentially a branch of the military health system focused on epidemiology, this report was released in 2019, chlamydia rates in the armed forces doubled and the rates of gonorrhea infections doubled for men and rose by 33% for women between 2013 and 2018, and the 2018 syphilis rate was three times larger than that in 2008. In 2012 alone, the Navy paid over $5 million in health care costs stemming from sexually transmitted infections. And if you consider the lasting repercussions of an infection like HPV, which can lead to cervical cancer, the health care costs are even higher and longer lasting. Do you think this is because of um, abstinence-only education? Uh, that's one of the my, my speculations okay. uh, that I'll get to in one second. Okay. Some have blamed this increase on the use of dating apps like Tinder or social media in general, which are apparently being used to find hookups, not pickups. Netflix and chilling. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I just think it's funny that during World War II, it was pickups. Yeah. And now it's hookups. And it used to be necking, and now it's making out. Ew, necking. Gross. My mom has been like, are you necking with your boyfriend? I'm like, I don't know what that word means, so I hope not. Oh, God. I hate it. But I think that there's a more likely deeper reason. 
The medical surveillance monthly report from March 2019 found that the highest incidence of infection was among junior enlisted officers in their early 20s with a high school education or less. And according to 26-year-old Air Force veteran Elizabeth McGee, quote, a lot of people that I knew of, at least that joined, they were either really, really young or they were from somewhere that didn't have much sex education. McGee also recalled the required sex education training she received when she first enlisted, which focused not on how to effectively prevent STIs while being sexually active, but on the horrors of scary diseases. So while Tinder might facilitate finding a sexual partner, it's not the real reason young officers and soldiers are getting STIs. It is, shock of shocks, America's shitty sexual education policies. Yep. At least that's that is my theory and I am sticking to that's it. That's what I thought of right away when I when I saw that. Yeah, yeah. This article that I'm that I'm quoting from was oh, what was it from? American Homefront. Um I think it was actually from a public some public media website. So it was like it was like written in good faith, but I was reading it and I was like what? The framing of this is completely wrong. It's like young officers are on Tinder all the time. That's why they have chlamydia. And I was like, no, lots of people are on Tinder all the time. Right. Also, and they don't get chlamydia because they use condoms. (laughs) They used to not have Tinder. No, but they were all put in like one place and sexually teased by sexy women and then sent off for a night on the town. Like that's right. Yeah. That seems like it just it's just a different way of hooking up, not Right. A way of hooking up more. But, you know, it's it's your argument always about the kids these days. Yeah. You know, it's that we have this new these new dating apps, which like give me Mm. a break, are like not even new. (laughs) Right. Like, they're really not that new. Um, But people are like, well, it's Tinder's fault that people are getting more chlamydia. That's people who are very short sighted and don't understand history because yeah in the 18th century it was the same thing oh my gosh kids these days they're yeah. going to these co-ed dances and they're just yeah. like boning yeah they're reading like, novels yeah. <laughs> right they're reading novels getting all hot and bothered about right. romantic things and it's like no matter what yeah and so uh, i was really i i like really went down the rabbit hole on this one and i feel in one way i feel really bad because um i based this one this this um, episode less on one book, which is what I usually do with episodes. And instead, I base it on many different articles. Um, mm-hmm. And there were so many more and so many more books that I could have used because this is it's a huge topic and it's fascinating. And I feel like we just barely scratched the surface here. Yeah. Um, maybe we in can my have history another of sexuality in America class. Like I... I, I, I put aside a lot of time for the 20th century because mm-hmm. I was less familiar with 20th century stuff than, mm-hmm. like, earlier stuff. So I put a lot of time. But I was so glad that I did because there was so much out there. There's a ton. It was yeah. so, so interesting, too. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of this stuff, like the the khaki-wacky and patriotutes thing. Um, like, I think almost every author you mentioned in here, we read something by yeah them. yeah they're in that elizabeth reese book lizzie reese <laughs> yes um but yeah so i i really um this was all stuff that i was vaguely aware of but hadn't ever read deeply in and um and so i was really excited to to do that in a couple of the books like the the one the um khaki wackies that 
the the khaki wackies and patriotes i can't remember the full title of it um that book i just was like oh my god this is amazing and the one about the uso so amazing but one of the things that i kept coming back to especially as i got to the end i really wanted to bring it to sort of this current fear about stis in the military because it was something that i just had encountered before um and it made me think like i really want to talk to veterans about what their experiences have been like in today's armed forces in their like what sex ed they've gotten because you we've seen how in world war ii there were films that they watched and you know that kind of thing and so i i put out a call on twitter and was like inundated with the veterans um and a couple of active duty people um telling me their stories and they were they lined up with this so perfectly like you know, many, many, many of them told stories about like getting kind of a half-assed talking to like a lecture from some superior officer that basically was like, STIs will destroy your life. They are terrible, terrible diseases. And then that was it. Right. (laughs) Like it wasn't like, and this is the condom, (laughs) you know, or like this is the antibiotic. Although we know that like gonorrhea today is actually getting more and more difficult to treat with antibiotics. But um, I thought that was really interesting. And one of the ones that stands out is um, a a guy that I I follow on Twitter said um, that his Twitter handle is angry staff officer. I don't know what his actual name is. I feel bad. But um, he said that, uh, he was sitting in a sex ed lecture and it was all like um, basically abstinence only. Like the only the only effective way to not get one of these diseases is to just not have sex, to not have sex, you know, when you're on leave or with American women, whatever. Don't have sex. And then he said he got up and went to the restroom, like took a break to go to the restroom. And there was bowls of condoms. <laughs> Like, they were just free, right? Yeah. And so it's this really interesting mixed messaging where it's like the army, the military can't decide yeah, which, like, they know they're going to have sex, so they're going to give them condoms, but they they can't tell them, they can't condone sex by giving them, telling them how to use condoms. If that, and that's just, that's very American, too. It's not just limited to the military. It's very American, but... Anyway, I yeah, just thought very that was weird. fantastic. And we asked Avril about this, too, We had to ask her partner, Dan, who is a Navy veteran. And he said that when he was on, he, he used to work on a submarine. And when they would go to certain ports before they would let them off for shore leave at these certain ports, it was like Singapore and Australia and some, another one that I can't think of. Um, but, but Dan was saying that before they would get to, before they would let them off of the sub, in only in certain ports. So it must have been ports that they assumed were, I don't know, had more sex sex work, work or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, that they would go in shifts. They would like cycle them in and out of the mess hall and give them like the STIs are scary talk and before they could let them off the, the sub. I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> yeah. I just can't imagine that those things are very effective. And we I mean, we know that they're not. Because we we know, like, from social scientists who have actually studied these things with these giant, like, double-blind surveys and things, that that abstinence-only sex education doesn't work. Because it just makes people 
people still have sex. It just makes them less able to have safe sex or less knowledgeable about having safe sex. And we know that teaching people how to have safe sex doesn't actually make them have more sex. It just makes their sex safer. But for some reason, those evangelical motherfuckers can't, can't. They can't wrap their head around it's it. It's like deeply mm-hmm. ingrained. Yeah, it's like deeply ingrained, even in places that are not like the deep Bible belt or whatever, right? Like it's still. Right. But even so, the same people who are from the Bible belt, as soon as they go to, you know, U of A or whatever, they're boning everyone they can. So it's like, it's <laughs> it's a very yes. cognitive dissonance thing, like where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, when I was 17, I was boning everything that moved, but like my kid can't know about sex or mm-hmm. else they'll do it and it's like well right i'm pretty sure that right. you didn't know about sex and even you though still since did the it. Right. dawn of time right yeah since right. the beginning of time people have have done it i mean this reminds me too of our our puritans episode right where in some ways the puritans had more enlightened ideas about how to handle their teenager sexuality mm-hmm. than we do because they were like they're gonna have sex May as well do it in that bed right. under my roof where I can, see, not where I can yeah, see it, but right. you know where I mean. like there are <laughs> some limitations, it, and I have yeah. control over who you're doing it with, and I can make you get married yeah. immediately if something happens. Yeah, yeah, but even today, I mean, even in New York State, which is people rail all the time about how liberal New York State is, you know, teachers can get in trouble for having condoms in their you know classrooms yeah. to hand out to students, like. I don't know about you, but I know in in my high school, everybody knew who the teachers were who had condoms in their drawers. I don't feel like... Like, because the idea was you could just go get one instead of having to ask. I think they were just in our nurse's office and it wasn't, like, a thing. Like, I think... Like, it wasn't... I don't think teachers felt responsible for doing it. I think you could just go to the nurse's office and get them. Yeah. I don't think that we could. I don't think that, or at least if they, we could, I wasn't aware of it. But there was one, there was always one teacher or staff person that everyone knew had condoms, kept them in, in his desk. Um, and, you know, you could just get one. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only peril with that was that then he knew, and he, he was, he also generally knew who you were dating. Yeah. So he so knew. He would, yeah, yeah he knew. Um. Well, that's and that brings us back around to the Catholic thing, which we just talked about in my episode, Ricogimento, that I went to a Catholic university and we could not have condoms on campus. I mean, you could like have them privately, but in health services, you couldn't have them in the bathroom. No, or or health services or whatever. And I, I wrote a editorial once about it, how like, I mean, it's a Catholic university, but you... They hire Don't many non-Catholics. They there. have yeah. many Muslims who attend the school and mm-hmm. work at the school. They have a Muslim prayer room. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, in that sense, they're all like, oh, yeah, do your Muslim thing. But nobody Be do Catholic sex. Be Catholic at the same time. <laughs> so, you know, like, right. you know, and let's, but we're not going to, we can acknowledge that, you know, you will pray and do Muslim prayers, which aren't Catholic, but we will not acknowledge that you will have sex. Yeah. And use yeah. that you should use contraceptives just because contraceptives are not Catholic. Yeah. So it was crazy. That makes me even more grateful for my small women's liberal arts college. <laughs> yeah. Where we had baskets in every bathroom on every floor of every right. dorm 
that and were there full were probably of some not, lesbians who were like, we don't need this many condoms. Well, <laughs> it was not, and because of that, it was not only condoms; it was always condoms and dental dams. Oh, okay. Because yeah, they weren't idiots, right? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you could all it was it was hysterical because like there would be a party one night and everybody would like have boyfriends over or invite guys to a party or something and the next morning like all the condom baskets would be empty (laughs) it was uh it was when it rains it pours right gotta gotta use them all right uh thanks for joining us email us at hello at digpodcast.org or follow us on twitter at dig underscore history or go to our patreon at patreon.com slash dig underscore history or join our Facebook group, Dig History Pod Squad. Indeed. Um, you can just search um, for it and we'll add you. So let's... Okay, bye. We love you. Which meant, which meant that they had to be made acceptable for nearly... Brown took his concern to Secretary of Defense Clark... <laughs> I, I, I want so bad to say Clark <laughs> Gifford. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, included dropsy, eye infections, respiratory infections... And more um, dropsy. Wait, why do I have dropsy in there twice? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, you just like, it looked like you were like silently screaming. or like, no. Ah. <laughs> I'm just yawning. Glass, or no, gas. Why does the last name have to be gas? <laughs> the white flower, the left. Yep, it's this is just taken verbatim out of it. It does not make sense. <laughs> okay. The core of Discovery's... Travails. 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 (laughs) The other day, Pat explained to me that crevice and crevasse are actually two different words and not just the British pronunciation of crevice. Yes, it's true. I didn't know that until very recently. I did. I don't know why. This was a kind of... Wait, sorry. I have an itch. That's really intense. Okay. Perdurst. (laughs) Perdurst. Don't get STDs. I'm not done. <laughs> Did you hear what he said? Daddy says you're not done. I I said almost. Can you can you almost? I'm almost done. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm a I'm a big talker. Um With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.